Thank you for joining us for this episode of the Institute for Policy Innovation podcast. We're coming to you today from the studios of Salem Media Group in Dallas, Texas. I'm Tom Giovanetti, the president of the Institute for Policy Innovation. Today is September 1st, 2022, and I'm joined as usual by IPI's resident scholar, Dr. Mara Matthews, and today by our special guest, Don Luskin. And today we're going to be chatting with Don Luskin about why inflation is on the way down. Don, that's tremendous news, and I'm sure Dr. Matthews is interested in asking you why you think inflation is on the way down. Well, you know, Don, we have known each other for a while, but I saw your piece in the Wall Street Journal on July 25th by that title, Why Inflation is on the Way Down. I thought that was very compelling, and I read through it, and I thought you made a very good case. So why don't you start out by explaining why you think inflation is on the way down, because it's not clear that the uh, the Solons at the Federal Reserve Bank agree with you. Fair enough. Well, I'm going to take you back to the economic wisdom that was created in the 60s and 70s by the great Nobel Prize winning economist and libertarian Milton Friedman, who said in a celebrated 1969 lecture that inflation is always and everywhere a monetary phenomenon. So he won the Nobel Prize for going back to the beginning of American history and tracing the money supply growth from decade to decade, year to year, business cycle to business cycle. And he and his co-author, Anna Schwartz, discovered, proved empirically, that changes in the money supply led with a lag, maybe one-year lag, two-year lag, it was different from time to time, into changes in the price level. In other words, inflation. So this led Friedman to conclude that inflation is not about, say, the price of oil going up or the price of semiconductors going down. It's not that at all. It's that we measure the price of all things in money. And when the price of all things goes up, that's probably because somebody in Washington, D.C. printed too much money. So it's actually the money that we measure everything else in going down. Inflation is everywhere and always a monetary phenomenon. We're seeing that now in very high relief because when, right or wrong, every country in the world made the decision to hard shut down the global economy in early 2020 in response to the COVID epidemic, in order to keep the wheels of the economy going, every country in the world, especially the United States, gave everybody stimulus payments, enhanced and extended unemployment benefits, special credits through the tax code, forgivable loans to keep your small business afloat. These were all the things we had to do to not go into a depression once we made the decision to shut down the economy for a while. But like all interventions, it has costs, it has side effects. And the side effect is we introduced over a period of a little more than a year, $6 trillion in stimulus, enhanced unemployment benefits, all the rest, into the American economy at a time when not only could people not buy things with the money because they were locked down, but then when they were let out, well, you, you know what the world is like right now. There are a lot of things in shortage because global supply chains are disrupted and it's hard, safe for restaurants to hire all the people they want. So we have an extra six trillion dollars 
chasing goods and services that are in scarcity. That is the perfect circumstance for inflation. And we've gotten the inflation. Now, you can prove this mathematically. You can look at the all-time record rate of change that we've experienced in the American money supply. So an economist uh, would, would look at a, a money supply series like, you know, so-called M2. That's mm-hmm. all the checking accounts and savings accounts and certificates of deposits and money market funds. Balances in those kinds of accounts grew $6 trillion in a single year because we had three gigantic stimulus bills, two under Trump and one under Biden. Those stimulus checks and all the rest went right into your checking account. You didn't even need to go to the mailbox. So that all stopped after the last of the stimulus programs, which was enacted in March of last year when Biden was first elected. We haven't done any more big stimulus programs. So that huge perturbation in the money supply in which everybody, you know, these things were all means tested. So the the people who got this money, you know, it's not one percenters on Wall Street. You know, these were ordinary working people who have a budget. And a lot of these people never had savings before. Well, they do now. When the lockdowns ended, they spent it. But those stimulus programs, all over. That peak in the money supply growth, that great showering of money on households and small businesses, that peaked in February of last year. Now, we can compute by looking at the history of the growth of the M2 money supply and look at how inflation has grown over the last couple of years. We can determine that there's about a 13-month lag, that changes in the money supply get reflected in inflation about 13 months later. And what do you know? M2 growth peaked in February of 2021. Horror inflation, which is you know, real bedrock inflation. So you take out the, you know, the crazy volatile items like gasoline. Core inflation peaked perfectly 13 months later in March of this year. Now, I know that the headlines wouldn't make you think that inflation has peaked, but if you look at the statistics, inflation has peaked perfectly we, 13 we, months after money supply growth peaked. And peak inflation has been, uh, excuse me, uh, core inflation has been coming down every month since March as money supply growth has been coming down. Money supply growth is now back to where it was before the pandemic, back to where it was before all those stimulus programs. So we know that 13 months from now, inflation will be back to where it was. It's really as simple as that. Milton Friedman, God rest his soul, would say inflation is always and everywhere a monetary phenomenon. That's true on the bad side and on the good side. We've lived through the bad side. Now we get the good side. Well, you know, our, our listeners can go and check this out by going to the Federal Reserve Bank of St. Louis. It's it's what is called it's Fred Graphics there, and they can look at the real M2 money stock. And, of course, if you look at this, you see that money supply had been basically just a slight increase over a number of years, started ticking up a little bit about July, about January 19 or so. But then when you get to tw- January 2020 or right after that, it just explodes up and levels off a little bit in uh, later 2020, 2021. And as you point out, around around March or so of 2021, it begins to level off a little bit. But now it's actually, I guess, starting about the beginning of the year, the money supply has actually started to decrease. Is it a problem if the money supply is actually decreasing rather than just growing at a slower amount? Um, if the money supply is decreasing uh, a lot and for long enough, 
it would be a very, very, very serious problem. Think about the uh, a growing economy needs a growing money supply, just as a growing boy needs a you know new new jacket every year as he as he <laughs> as he gets bigger and bigger. And you know we can't have a twenty five year old man wearing a jacket designed to fit a twelve year old boy. Uh, that's what creates recessions. In fact, that's what creates depressions. Uh, the greatest depression we've ever had in this country, which was, of course, the 1930s, uh, was preceded, Milton Friedman would tell you if you were here today, uh, by a historic contraction in the money supply. Now, I don't want people to worry about that. That hasn't happened yet. Uh, there's no way that we can have the opposite of a stimulus program where you know the president, instead of... Uh, Paying you eight hundred dollars takes away eight hundred dollars. I suppose we could uh, raise taxes, but there's there's no immediate prospect of that happening. So I really wouldn't worry about that. I, I would just I would just take the win and say that flat money supply growth for a little while here will take care of the inflation, and you're going to be so glad to have that albatross off your shoulders. Don, there have been a lot of. Uh, comparisons between the inflation that we're seeing now and the inflation of the 1970s. And uh, I'm uh, Dr. Matthews and I are both old enough to have lived through the inflation of the 1970s, and we know how harmful, th- how harmful that was to the economy. But you have you have sort of drawn a, a significant contrast between the inflation of the 70s and the inflation now, right? The the inflation yes. of the 70s took place over a long, gradual time period, whereas uh, the inflation that we're experiencing now happened because of a very, very short, intense uh, activity by the federal government, yes. right? That's right. So the the inflation that we experienced in the 70s, which, you know, famously Federal Reserve Chair Paul Volcker, uh, you know, had the political courage to uh, really hard, hard stop the economy in order in order to defeat it. Uh, he did it because he recognized the very kinds of things we're talking about. Uh, he came into office as Fed chair, not with just a very short you know, one year surge, like, you know, you're describing seeing on the St. Louis Fed's website, uh, he inherited 20 years of excessive money supply growth. Think of an impact to the money supply as being like uh, dropping a boulder in a pond. If you just drop one boulder in, you know, you're going to have a nice ripple and some water is going to come up on the shore of the pond. But unless you're dropping more boulders, you know, it, it just, it's just a one time event. Well, Volcker inherited a world where it was just boulder after boulder after boulder after boulder, and it was destroying that pond. There was no water left. Everybody was getting soaked on the shore. So it took some heavy blasting for him to deal with it. His memory is now getting invoked every time current Fed Chair Jay Powell opens his mouth. because so I guess Jay Powell would like to live in the history books next to the great and glorious Paul Volcker, who slayed a very big dragon. Uh, that's fantasy thinking, my friends. We don't have a, we don't have a dragon here. You know, this is this thing's taking care of itself. The money supply growth has stopped. The inflation's already started to stop. Uh, this is a solved problem. All the Fed has to do is nothing. It terrifies me that we see speeches by Jay Powell, like the one he gave at Jackson Hole, talking about, well, you're going to have to experience some pain. Uh, <laughs> it terrifies oh, man. It oh, man. Terrifies. Spoken like a guy who's not going to experience any pain himself. So this sounds a lot like Jay Powell thinking he needs to do a replay of Paul Volcker. But as you describe the situation, the two situations are very different. And if Jay Powell thinks he needs to do a replay of Paul Volcker, uh, that could actually be harmful. Is that right? 
Sure, because when you when you treat a disease you don't have, you have to you have to live with the fact that all treatments have costs and side effects and sometimes unpredictable. So if if you don't have an underlying condition that requires treatment, for God's sake, don't treat it because the treatment itself is going to create problems. So you know this is uh, I, I I mean this this may be controversial to some of your listeners, but I'm I'm going to say it anyway. Uh, looking back now with what we know now with the fullness of time. I think we know that locking down the economy in 2020 in an attempt to stop COVID was a very expensive treatment that turned out not to be actually very counterproductive. When we started locking down the economy in mid-March of 2020, there were 12,000 COVID cases a day in the whole world. Hmm. And yet we panicked and we shut down the world. And two years later, there are 800,000 COVID cases a day. So the lockdowns were not necessary. They didn't work. They made it worse. And this is exactly like that. The problem is Jay Powell is a public official who now lives in the shadow of public officials like Dr. Fauci and all the other public health officials around the world who learned all we have to do is scare you enough. And boy, you'll line up to experience that pain we're warning you about. You'll ask for it. Let's talk about some of the Fed's actions, because during the uh, pandemic, they went to quantitative easing. That's where I believe they were buying uh, bonds or securities or something like that and and put in something like five trillion dollars in doing that. Uh, They have scaled back on that and letting some of those securities when they're coming due, uh, they're not re-upping them. And then today, as just as we are speaking here on September 1st, they're moving to quantitative tightening, as I understand, where they're actually scaling back the money that they've been putting into that. What is your assessment on that? Because the the, the economist and, and so forth look at this a lot to ask, ask is this was this infusing money in the money supply? Was this helping? Right. Did it uh, did it yeah. create? Did it sort of soften the blow? What do you think about that? Well, the, this this is a fairly technical topic, uh, so forgive me for having to give you a technical answer. But um, the Fed buying government bonds and buying mortgage backed securities does not increase the money supply at all. It doesn't send an eight hundred dollar check to anybody like a stimulus check. Uh, all it does is it takes securities that have a little bit of risk associated with them, like you know, a treasury bond, say a 10-year treasury bond. Yeah, it doesn't have any risk of default officially, but it fluctuates in value. Mortgage-backed securities fluctuate in value and have uncertain payment schedules. Banks hold trillions of these things. So anytime the economy is in a financial panic, like we were uh, after uh, the Lehman bankruptcy in 2008, mm-hmm. and like we were when the whole world was shutting down during the COVID lockdowns, One of the worst risks is that the banking system might get destabilized. So what quantitative easing does is it just takes trillions of dollars worth of securities, no one of which is very risky, but when you do six trillion of it, it really adds up. It takes risk off the bank's balance sheet so the banks don't get in trouble like they did in 2008. So that's all that is. That doesn't put money in consumers' pockets. It doesn't contribute to M2. It has absolutely nothing to do with this. And stopping it now, as you correctly point out, they are doing and running it very slowly in reverse has nothing to do with this either. So you're going to, you know, hear this from people who, you know, are trying to sound like smart Fed insiders. Please take my word for it. This is an absolute distraction. It's completely meaningless to this topic. Don, let's wrap up with two questions. First of all, what do you think is the greatest risk right now? The Fed being too aggressive in raising interest rates or the Fed not being aggressive enough in raising interest rates? 
uh, the former exclusively. Um, there is no need to raise interest rates to combat inflation because inflation has already peaked and has already headed down and did peak and started heading down before the Fed did its first little rate hike in March. So this is, you know, because money supply growth transmits into inflation with a lag, that means that the return to normal that we've already experienced with money supply growth has basically baked in the cake. It's just set down a, a pair of iron rails that the train of the economy just has no choice but to go down toward lower inflation. So, Chairman Powell, you do not need to imitate Lieutenant Cali here. There is absolutely no need to burn down the village in order to save it. Absolutely not. That's the biggest risk we face. And then, Don, finally, uh, the recent announcement by the Biden administration that they're going to do this huge, nearly trillion-dollar student loan bailout program. Uh, there's a lot of discussion about how that's going to actually potentially add to inflation. Obviously, it more than cancels out whatever deficit reduction the Biden administration got from the Inflation Reduction Act, the so-called Inflation Reduction Act. But do you see the student loan bailout program as contributing harmfully to the inflation problem? Yes, but it's a small thing and a slow thing. It, it will, instead of injecting $6 trillion into the economy, deliberately on an emergency basis. We wanted to get that money into people's hands, into the hands of small businesses to prevent the world from ending. So that was done big and in a big hurry. This college thing, the loan forgiveness thing, this is just garden variety, political pandering and vote buying that's going to be spread out gradually over many years. Look, at the margin, if you do what I do every day and you're looking at the economy through a microscope, you, know, you can maybe tease out some effects of it. But Compared to what we've been through, where we dropped $6 trillion on the U.S. economy in an 11-month period, this student loan thing, it's just basically invisible. So move along. There are other things to worry about, like whether the Fed is going to throw us into a depression for absolutely no reason. So the student loan program is small potatoes compared to everything else. Yeah. Look, I'm not saying it's good. I'm not yeah. saying it's fair. I certainly don't endorse it, but it has pretty much nothing to do with the inflation conversation. Don, what's the right Fed and fiscal policy going forward to grow the economy and to keep inflation under control? Well, um, let's consult the spirit of Milton Friedman, who would say that you pretty much want the money supply to grow in lockstep with the growth of the nominal economy. Um, you, you just want to make sure that as the economy grows, there's enough money for it to keep operating. And the way the Fed traditionally does that is by keeping interest rates at a level that makes borrowers want to borrow and lenders want to lend. And the right interest rate that's not too low and not too high is one that makes borrowers and lenders happy. So borrowing and lending happens, and that's where money comes from. There's kind of an illusion that the Fed somehow is where money comes from. No, it's not. It comes from the banking system. The Fed, the Fed's role it's just to make sure that the banking system has the right interest rate so that money gets created through lending by bringing borrowers and lenders together at an interest rate that they both love. So uh, depending on how the economy grows, we don't know what that you know, exact interest rate is. Uh, we know, I think, over the last 20 years that interest rates generally have been weirdly low. 
Uh, perhaps that's because over the last 20, 25 years, we've seen a tremendous increase in global savings in places that never had savings before. So whole new middle classes involving literally billions of people have emerged in the last 25 years in places like China and India. They have a tremendous need to save the new wealth that they've created as they've joined the global middle class. That wealth has to be saved somewhere. So there is a tremendous global force that is looking to lend money to qualified borrowers. So we can expect interest rates based on that huge pool of savings looking for a home to not go back to the high rates that we saw even in low inflation eras like, say, the late 80s and the early 90s before this miracle of global wealth happened. So uh, don't think that interest rates have to go back to where they were when, you know, you and I were young adults. That's not going to happen. As to the exact rate, well, I don't know where it is, but I, I can tell you that the Fed is talking about taking rates up to something like 4%. And I can tell you with pretty high confidence that that is too high. And that's going to slow growth to a point where you're not going to like it. Don, this has been incredibly valuable. Thanks so much for spending time with us. How can our listeners follow your work? Well, you can just look at the editorial page of the Wall Street Journal where I show up uh, several times a year. You can follow me on Twitter at, at Don Luskin, but uh, I, I have to say I have mo most of that content is uh, obnoxious and political. <laughs> yeah, I should say that um, there's a piece by you in the July 25th 2022 issue of the Wall Street Journal, where you essentially make this argument why inflation is on the way down. So if people want to read a, a detailed description of your view, they can see that as well as a chart that shows uh, expected inflation plummeting by mid-2023. So that's the July 25th, 2022 issue of the Wall Street Journal. Don, thanks so much for joining us. We really appreciate your time. Thank you. What an honor to be with you. And we invite our listeners to check out our website at IPI.org if you would like to see more information about economic policy and monetary policy and the dangers of high inflation. At our website, you can sign up if you'd like to receive notices of all of our new podcasts, new content, and upcoming events. If you've enjoyed this podcast, how about giving us a favorable review on iTunes or on your favorite podcast platform? You can also help to sponsor these podcasts by becoming a member of IPI's Giving Society. Thank you for joining us, and we will see you next time.